If I am asking other recruiters, potential employees, clients, candidates to come along on this journey with me and be a part of my organization or partner with our organization, then I owe it to them to deliver a first-class experience. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Amanda Brandenburg. Amanda is the founding principal at Opus Lex Partners, a legal recruiting boutique servicing law firms and corporate legal departments throughout the country. For over a decade, she was a top producer at two of the country's largest legal staffing firms. Then in 2018, Amanda founded Opus Lex Partners to bring a hands-on customized and personalized approach back to legal recruiting. And that formula is certainly working for her. In just three years, she successfully built a $2 million firm. Amanda's passionate about her work, obviously, and enjoys the challenges and the competitive nature of the recruitment business. When she's not sourcing top legal talent for her clients, you can find her spending time with her husband and three children and two rescue dogs at home in Atlanta. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. Excited to be here. All right. So I always like to hear people's origin story. How and why did you get into recruitment? Well, probably like most other people in recruitment, um, it was a happy accident and maybe a long and winding road. But (laughs) when I think back on it, I've really always been in some sort of agency environment. So um, the summer before I graduated from college, I went out to Los Angeles and worked for a talent and literary agency placing, um, or I said, I should say assisting in placing writers, producers, and actors in the entertainment industry in Hollywood and really loved that environment. I thought it was absolutely thrilling, very exciting. And that was what I wanted to do. So I returned to Los Angeles after college, worked for another talent and literary agency for several years there. Still loved it. Um, But what I realized there was that a lot of the agents around me were splitting their deals with entertainment lawyers. And I studied English and philosophy in college. So law school had always been in the back of my mind. And it just felt like the practical next step if I did want to continue as an agent. So I came back to Atlanta to apply to law school. And um, during that time, my mother wisely suggested that I spend some time in a law firm, making sure that was something I wanted to devote several years and many thousands of dollars to. So I did and really did not like being in a law firm or um, I should say really that sort of linear day-to-day that was required for that level of work. I found it very intellectually stimulating, but didn't really suit my personality. So I ended up um, deferring to law school for several years and Um, finally decided that that was not going to be a path I would pursue. And while I was preparing to return to Los Angeles and back to an agency environment, um, I met my now husband, which sort of created some complications in returning. And in the interim, someone suggested I should consider sales. So I took a job in luxury retail. And then I had also had this experience working in law firms by that point for several years. And then finally, one day answered an ad with Robert Half seeking someone with sales and legal experience. And that's how I got started. Perfect. It was the uh, 
intersection of so many different experiences. And um, wow, I, I forgot that you did philosophy as well. I have a philosophy degree as well. That does it's not funny, surprise there's few, me. <laughs> <laughs> there's a few of us in recruiting who have weirdly got a philosophy degree, but um, that was super smart of your mom to say before you enroll in law school, because how many lawyers do you know? I know plenty who, or graduates of law school who are not practicing lawyers because they only figured out, you know, after doing that, that it wasn't going to be for them. So you kind of, you, you, I think made the right uh, choice there. Um, what happened next? So you joined Robert Half and um, yeah, how did you progress from there? Yeah. So I joined Robert Half really with the you know, understanding with myself and my then boyfriend that I was probably going to do this for maybe a year. Um, at that point, I had a ton of credit card debt from living on my own in Los Angeles and a very low paying job. Um, and I really had to kind of work my way through that. So I thought, okay, maybe I can do this and see how this goes. I knew nothing about staffing or recruiting whatsoever, but maybe I can pay off some of this debt and I'll figure out the next step. So, um, you know, it's interesting and something that I think about a lot when I am now hiring for my own organization is I remember when I um, went into that interview, they really had a lot of questions about being money motivated. And I think that's something we talk about a lot in this industry. And it wasn't ironically, even though that was sort of my motivation, it wasn't anything that really resonated with me as being compelling. And I think part of that was because I really didn't have any money. So it was hard to really be motivated by money when you don't have any. Um, but I was highly competitive in the sense that I wanted to win. And that didn't really mean necessarily working against my peers or even necessarily getting accolades from the organization in terms of any sort of external validation. But um, when I was hired there, I was doing mostly temporary staffing for generally legal support candidates. So, um, paralegals, legal secretaries, receptionists. And this is 2006, 2007. So at that point in time, we were not yet in any sort of mobile environment, right? We were working in the office with manila folders and paper, and we were still faxing some resumes at that point as well. So if someone called you on a Friday afternoon and said, our you know person just quit and we need someone here on Monday, you were really tasked with coming through for that person who was responsible to their law firm partners or whomever it may be. And that was really what drove me was um, sort of being that hero in that story and being a good service partner and just wanting to win in that regard and fill the order, um, especially if they gave it to multiple people. I found that to be exhilarating and very exciting. And as a result, I ended up doing very well. And then I was sort of paying a little bit more attention to the money because it was really helping me pay off my debt. And I just absolutely fell in love with the business. So that was- Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great story. So um, where you mentioned this, like just wanting to win and that actually being more 
satisfying to you than the money. Money is great, but it was more winning and delivering an excellent service that was kind of like your driver. Like, what do you think are the qualities or attributes or values that are necessary in order to achieve the level of, you know, performance that you have in your career, Amanda? Like, the winning maybe is part of it. What else is there to it? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this lately with our um, core values here at Opus Lex Partners and really how I can trace all of that back to the beginning of my career. And when I think about it, you know, really partnering with someone and taking ownership and taking responsibility for whatever that assignment may be. And it's the same if you're working with a candidate and they have tasked you with finding them a new position or negotiating the best offer for them and putting yourself aside and really evaluating the task at hand. And it comes back to integrity and transparency and I think empathy as well and having a genuine concern for the person on the other end of that side or the, per- or the person with whom you are partnered. So I took a great sense of responsibility with those jobs and really felt that those clients were counting on me to fill whatever roles those were um, and took it very seriously. So I think for anyone starting out, you have to find your own motivator. And I think especially with this younger generation that we have right now, they are really motivated by helping people. And, um, you know, you, we are in a business, so you do have to dollarize that in some way and dig a little deeper because this can be quite transactional at times. But I think you have to really think about what motivates you. And if it's changing lives, then Think about um, you know how many placements that is per year in terms of how many lives change. I know at Robert Half we had a very large banner that hung over, um, hung from the ceiling in the bullpen, and it just said, "Where's your next start?" And we were always in, in the contract staffing business, at least, we're always like, "Where's our next start? Where are we placing the next person?" So rather than looking at it from a strict billing perspective, you really started with the person who you are impacting. And, you know, in that scenario, you're impacting clients and you're impacting candidates. So if you're just really looking at the task at hand, everything else will fall into place. Amazing. I love that. Thank you for for sharing that. And so, I mean, you went on to join Beacon Hill. You were a top five producer there. In fact, in 2016, you were the number one company wide. How many people uh, were in that business? So when I left Beacon Hill, it was roughly a $500 million company. So um, there were several hundred probably at that point in 2016. Okay. Wow. So number one out of several hundred, and you've already shared some of the kind of the mindset um, that helped you to achieve that. Were there any other factors? Like if you, if you think about your own performance and like what was the 20% that made the biggest difference to your success there, do you think? Absolutely. Um, You know, a lot of that success stemmed from a few major clients. And I think that's where it goes right back to what I was just talking about in terms of having that level of personal responsibility and the commitment to your client and doing whatever it takes to show up for them and deliver the service that they're expecting. 
we had a very close relationship with um, one client in particular. We traveled with them. We set up projects with them. We would procure real estate. We were managing the supplies. I mean, top to bottom, um, start to finish, we really provided those solutions. And I think, again, keeping that in mind and doing really whatever it takes to get that job done, which you know may include crawling under a six-foot table that you just set up at 11 p.m. and making sure that the desktop monitor towers or um, the towers to the computers are taped to the legs so that they don't get kicked over. Um, you know, <laughs> extending your wow, trip <laughs> to, you know, for three weeks after you uh, thought you'd be coming home three weeks prior, um, you know, getting the uh, the donuts for 400 contract attorneys at 6 a.m. when you went to bed at, you know, 2 a.m. So there was a lot of that um, that was really sort of grassroots stuff that we did. And I think the other key part of that was I really developed an amazing team there in those years that was extremely loyal to me and I was extremely loyal to them. And we all had really the same goal in mind and we worked extremely well together. Amazing. So, okay. So the two real keys that I took from that are number one is really going over and above to um, forge those client relationships that um you know, those accounts can grow and develop and you, you know, you grow with them. And the amount of commitment, ownership, um, responsibility you took in order to ensure that they receive that level of care uh, shines through there. And then the second was, you know, having the right team around you as well. Um, and maybe we'll talk a, a little bit more about that in a, in a second. So, you alluded to a um, a project where you had hundreds of attorneys. Like, what can you give give me a sense of like um, what sort of key clients were these, and how did you really, apart from the things you just shared, like going on trips and staying away from home and working till two in the morning? Like, what were what was the that was the peripheral stuff, but what was the core that you were delivering for these clients? Absolutely. So we were delivering um, a scalable resource for a particular piece of litigation, um, which is, you know, this story, I suppose, starts probably 10 or 12 years ago at this point. But when this was a relatively new concept, um, it was much less of a commodity than it is now. So there were a lot of kinks to work through, but these are mostly contract attorneys reviewing documents for relevance and privilege within the course of discovery and the course of litigation. Ah, okay, got it, got it. And how long do these projects like go on for? Some of them may go on for you know as little as maybe two or three months. Others can go on for years, literally. Wow, okay. Interesting. That's yeah. that's cool. Would you like to make the transition from pure contingency to being a retained recruiter? Do you want to be respected as a true business partner by your clients while increasing your average fee? If so, then clearly you need to do something different. You can't just keep doing what you're doing and expect a different result. Our sponsor, iIntro, gives you a turnkey solution for winning retained searches and managed service agreements at higher fees. 
you will take business away from your competitors because you can actually show the client a unique methodology in a very tangible way and demonstrate conclusively how you will improve their staff retention and reduce their total cost per hire while also saving hours of management time. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mentioned that you listened to this podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount on any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. So you were very successful at developing these relationships was what else do you think you know because i'm i'm looking at this amanda thinking i'm sure there were lots of folks at that company who cared about their clients and worked super hard and i so i'm just wondering what else separates that top performer from an average performer i was not in the top five i was in the top 15 percent at my firm out of 200 uh, recruiters um I was pretty proud of that, though, because I started out in the middle of the pack and worked my way up to the top 15%. But you were at the, you know, echelon above that. And I'm I'm really curious to know, like, what it takes to achieve that. Well, Mark, first, I'm, I'm glad that you're on the other side of this now because we really need you here as a coach. <laughs> um, you know, I think a big part of it is, first of all, being self-aware and recognizing that you're not a fit for everyone. However, really finding those clients and contacts where you are a fit and really capitalizing on those relationships and strengthening and deepening those relationships. So for me, um, you know, I think a lot of people take the approach that they're just going through their call sheet and they're approaching every account or every client the same without really the emotional intelligence or appreciating the nuances of who they are clicking with and really who they're tracking with um, at an exceptional level and then really following that path. So um, I think that's one thing. But two, you know, just not settling. And eventually, you know, when I was number two for a number of years in the company, I really, really wanted to be number one. And um, (laughs) we we made it happen. So, you know, there's a lot of that that you can't control. But um, Mm -hmm. for most people, probably that internal drive does kick in. You're like, I've just got to check the box and um, really scratch that itch. And I think that is probably something that most top producers have is sort of an Mm. internal itch that can never really be scratched and this work is never done and there's always more and more to achieve. Mm, Absolutely. Tell me about the team aspect though to it because you credit having a great team around you as being part of the secret to your success. So um, what is involved in putting together an, you know, an awesome team that enables that success? Again, self-awareness. Um, first of all, I have a very long list of things that I am not good at that are not my strengths. I really do understand what my strengths are. That surprises are. me, Amanda. No, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, 
I am not the most organized person. Um, I've got a lot of loose ends at any given point. And, um, you know, sometimes I kind of can't be bothered with the details. But if, you know, when the power goes out in your review room because you didn't have enough voltage going for however many monitors that you have set up in there and (laughs) um, the client has their client there and you're in a bit of a crisis and the client is breathing down your neck, I am really good in that situation. I can manage that. But, um, you know, a lot of the other things are not my strength. So for us, again, I was always client facing. I was you know, very good with that and really enjoy that and looking at really the big picture of the project, understanding the financials, understanding the value that we are providing to the client as well as to our candidates and um, really sort of that deliverable was my strength. But there are lots of other people that were so necessary with those projects with, of course, recruiting and the day-to-day of that. Um, A lot of the you know, internal housekeeping that comes with having that many people on the same project and um, and operations was huge. So totally, there were plenty. So could you like just break that down? Like when you were top five in this firm, what was the structure of your team and what did other people do for you? Yeah. So um, in that scenario, I was client facing. So meaning I, you know, this particular client and piece of business that we're talking about was something that I developed personally. So uh, 15 years ago at this point, almost. So um, that was my client. All the communication went through me, all of the complaints, crises, pat on the backs, all of that stuff went through me. Um, I had two people doing recruiting, um, sort of at different levels, I would say. I had one person more senior than the other, and they would sort of project manage each other, which was really helpful. And then one of them was typically more responsible for boots on the ground, day-to-day, any sort of um, feedback we needed to give, contract attorneys, and you know, managing those details that went along with housing a project like that all across the country, which we had multiple locations over the years where we were doing these things. Amazing. So it was just a team of three? That was. Yes. Wow. That's we, amazing. Lean, yeah, lean and mean. It was very lean and mean. We did scale it, of course, as the years went by and we would use different teams and different markets um, within our organization, but we were really the core three people who okay. were responsible for that. So you were the business developer and client facing person and you were supported by two recruiters basically correct okay all right awesome so um what would you say was the well let, let's just keep going with the chronology so you were doing super well there you had a steady lucrative role you were getting lots of accolades i saw a video um on youtube of you getting winning awards at a big company conference and stuff why did you decide to leave that and start your own gig? Well, um, I think I felt that, you know, in, a, in every sense of the phrase, it had really run its course. Um, for me personally, I reported to a national managing director who reported to the CEO. And I had been there almost a decade. And the 
you know, the opportunities for me for the next decade were really opening more offices and really being a dedicated middle manager did not speak to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So there was that piece. I also, you know, could feel and we were getting very real-time feedback from the marketplace and our clients that what we had devoted so much time and energy to was becoming much more of a commodity and the margins were deteriorating and the expectations were accelerating. And I was also getting older, it turned out. So, um, (laughs) you know, as I was starting to approach 40, I thought um, with, you know, three children, the last large project I did where I was crawling around at 11 p.m. taping um, towers to tables, I was eight months pregnant. I thought, I I don't think this bodes well for me in the next decade of my life and I need to figure something out. So, um, I really wanted you know, a new challenge for a lot of reasons. One of the greatest joys I have from my previous firm, I opened the office for them um, in 2009 during the recession and built out the Southeast for them. And of course, developed that client as well. And what I learned about myself is that I really enjoy building. And once something is sort of set and running, um, that's great. And that's, that's the goal of the company, right? Is for things to, um, to have structure and processes and a team and profit and revenue and all of those things. And I felt like we had done it and I needed something more at that point. So, um, for a lot of reasons, I decided to go out on my own, which ironically was something I swore I would never do, but here we are. Amazing. I I obviously missed a step in the story here because I forgot that you building Opus Lex, you had already built an office for your previous firm. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because the, you know, the timing of that coinciding with the recession, that must have been pretty tough. What did that, you know, how did you pull that off? Well, the advice I would give anyone who's approached with that opportunity is to really seriously consider it. It was something that I was approached about multiple times and rolled my eyes. I was done with staffing. I wanted out of the business. Um, I never wanted to place another temporary candidate for the rest of my life. And we were in a recession. So um, I was asked to you know, open an office with a Northeastern-based brand name in the South, in a recession, in a time where no one needed another staffing firm. That was the last thing anyone needed. And by the way, I was newly pregnant and had just bought my first house. So (laughs) that's a perfect storm. (laughs) It was. So none of that seemed like a good idea, but it ended up being truly, you know, one of the most pivotal opportunities of my life. And I'm so glad I said yes. And I'm so glad I did it. It started with me at my house, my new, new then house. And, um, working in my guest room and, you know, taking one order and filling it and just repeat, repeat, repeat. And then I had someone who I had met at a trade show a year ago approach me and say, Hey, I see you've moved over here. I'd love to join you. She came on board. Um, she was still there when I left. 
So, um, and then we grew and then we, we were in temporary office space and then we got a little, you know, a bigger room. And when I say rooms, I'm being very literal here. I remember we had a room for years with no windows that I called the Vegas room because you never knew what time it was. It was absolutely terrible. So, um, we went through sort of a lot of startup pains and, you know, and then it was nine years later, I mean, it was built and it was, it was thriving. So I really felt that I had accomplished a lot. The people I had brought on had accomplished a lot. We had grown up tremendously together and it was time to move on and imagine something different for myself and for the market. Amazing. And so what was the sort of size and shape of the business when you, when you were done? So when I was done, I mean, the company itself was about 500 million when I left. When I started, it was 50 million. And that's for the company, not just the legal division. So I should be specific about that. Um, so I think when I left- But your your office, I'm thinking like you built it up and you grew the team. What, uh, how, how, you know, what did that uh, entail? Yeah, I think we had maybe when I left, five or six people in Atlanta. I had also opened um, a Nashville office at the time that was new because we had been doing a lot of work in Nashville for a number of years out of Atlanta and felt like we really needed a local presence there. We'd also been doing work in the Carolinas um, out of Atlanta and some in Florida. So we were very mobile at that point and the lines got a bit blurry as to, you know, who was assigned where, I suppose. Um, but we had beautiful office space in Midtown Atlanta and we had a review center. So it had, you know, it had come from nothing to something that I was very proud of when I left. Awesome. That must have really given you a confidence boost then to, you know, think, hey, I can do this and and you know and and do it for myself this time. Absolutely. It did. And um Yes, and I will say that I am still amazed every day at how much I don't know about what I'm doing now and how much I'm learning. <laughs> Do you know what I? Um, I'm I'm turning 49 in a few months, and I remember being younger, like in my 20s, thinking that, like, looking at people a decade or two older and assuming that they had, they must have everything figured out and know what this is all about, and you know. And now I, I still don't know, like I'm still figuring this whole thing out, but- um, Absolutely. Yeah, we're always learning. That's, <laughs> uh, that's the fun thing. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading and listening to business books, watching TED Talks, but by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, 
and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So you started in 2018 and you built that up over three years. Talk to me about that part of your journey, which is the most recent and I would say the most relevant like for our audience because, you know, we have a lot of business owners listening in and um, I'm I'm really excited to learn the trials and tribulations of Opus Lex. Sure. Um, so I started in October of 2018 by myself. And I went through these calculations numerous times with my family because I am the primary breadwinner at my house. And this is a really big deal to leave a very stable, um, you know, long-term spot where I was very comfortable and very safe for going out on my own. But I really felt like there was, there was no other option that I saw And it was something that I eventually became very excited about when I thought about it. So um, as we've talked about, my background historically was in contract staffing. And that's something that, you know, for anyone who doesn't know about contract staffing or is interested in that business, I'd be happy to talk to you because I think it it's not as glamorous or as sexy necessarily as the bigger perm deals. And it's definitely a different style of recruiting and a different type of relationship. But if you are an agency owner, it is so valuable from um, a business perspective and for providing a lot of stability to your financials. So I definitely recommend it. And it really solves a huge problem in the marketplace at times. So um, I knew I knew that was something that I wanted to have. So um, I went to a lot of different resources and went through <laughs> painstaking trial and errors to um, set up that infrastructure from day one because I knew that would sort of bring a lot of stability and continuity to my business and our revenues. So that was one of the first things we did um, was set up our contract staffing arm. And after that, it was me on my own and. Thankfully, um, so many of my clients, not all of them, really came right along and rallied around me and wanted to support me. So we were off to the races from day one. I knew that I was leaving a lot of that large volume stuff that we've been talking about the last few minutes behind, and that was by design. So I was very excited to um, really you know, pare down my business and really think about who are the people I really enjoy working with. And also thinking about how my own organic network has matured and taking stock of that and um, really leveraging that and the types of deals I wanted to work on and the type of people I wanted to talk to every day. Amazing. I'd love to talk more about contract staffing in a second. Um, What are the sorts of uh, deals that you're doing now, like what sort of roles are you filling and what services are you offering sure. um, at Opus Lex? Absolutely. So the majority of services that we're offering right now in this market, which I think is a big underscore, um, we are placing law firm partners, 
we are placing um, associate general counsel for in-house corporate legal departments, and we are placing lateral associates with law firms by and large. Great. Okay, fantastic. And that market is just seems to have gone crazy in the even during COVID, it was growing, and and now it's um, it's showing no sign of slowing down. Um, so there's the whole candidate shortage piece, which we could talk about if we have time. But what I'm actually really curious about is how you've married up the contract staffing and the you know permanent and executive recruiting, because. And I love that you've done that. A, a lot of, and actually that's not uncommon here in the UK, <clears throat> but what I see in America is these two worlds seem to be very separate. And for whatever reason, like, now they are different things, different services and, and required, you know, um, a different setup. But to me, they just seem like very natural like their brother and sister, really. Mm -hmm. um, why wouldn't you offer both? Because they off they both have their own advantages. So the contract staffing gives you that recurring revenue, the stability and continuity of income, mm -hmm. which is a you know peace of mind as much as anything. But also gives you the confidence to grow and to hire because you know what your billings are going to be next month and the month after. But then the you know, permanent or direct hires, you call it, um, placements give you that, you know, injection of much bigger, you know, fees, uh, which is amazing. And it seems obvious to me that you would, like, I don't see why you wouldn't want to do both. But um, I guess the only downside I can see is maybe the split focus and does it dilute, because they are different, is it challenging to manage both because they're sort of different modes of working. Yeah. So I think the reason a lot of people don't have both is one, it's expensive and time consuming to set up and support the contract side, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. of infrastructure that's required there um, with timesheets. Uh, liability insurance is incredibly expensive. Um, of course, mm -hmm. you have to have workers comp. And you have to, you know, are you, if you're going to be competitive in the marketplace, especially with any, you know, type of high-end staffing, like we're in within the attorney space, you have to make sure that you're offering exceptional benefits to your candidates, which a lot of people don't want to be bothered with. So I think, you know, if you're somebody like myself three years ago, who was alone, um, solo and you're working out of your house, you're probably not going to have a contract staffing business. You're probably going to be, you know, just doing perm deals, which there's nothing wrong with that at all. So I, I think that part was very unusual, but I never set out to be a solo recruiter. And, and frankly, you know, I didn't have a lot of training on the perm side. So I was very comfortable with contract staffing. It was something that, um, made me feel very secure from a financial perspective. And I had those relationships. So I think that's one reason people don't do it, but I don't, you know, I, I also think they don't understand it. They don't understand how to price it. Mm. They don't understand the margins. And mm. um, generally they don't understand how expensive it is per hour, like what their payroll burden is so that they price it incorrectly and then they're not making any money and they feel like it's a hassle. Mm. Um, 
The other piece of that is really choosing your contract staffing. So with our staff, anything we do contract, it's really only going to be substantive attorney work. So nothing like what I did when I was a you know kid at Robert Half placing one day receptionist. I mean that's a nightmare. <laughs> so um, especially oh, totally. if you're a small yeah. team. Um, so we really right. only do high end sort of sophisticated stuff where people are grown ups and get to work, and we don't really need to manage it too much. So um, that is one piece. But yes, to your question, I do think it's a different type of. Um, consulting from a from the agency's perspective, it's very different, and that it's client focused, right? Versus so much candidate focused, and typically, a client is not going to give a contract need to a handful of recruiters on a contingency basis. So, especially with the larger projects like the client we've been talking about here that I had for so many years, um, you know, there there were probably people all over the country who wanted that business. So it's highly competitive in terms of business development. Um, But I think, you know, the other part of that is having both of them is so smart because when I started at Robert Half in 2007, it was right before the recession. And now having gone through and coming and come out of that recession, COVID, um, this insane hiring boom that we're in now, you have to be able to respond to the market. So being exclusively locked down to contract when you have a very low unemployment rate is a hard gig to have because you don't have a lot of unemployed candidates to place. So that is very challenging. Being locked into only doing perm when you're in a recession is a really bad place to be as well. So having the ability to pivot and respond to the marketplace has been hugely impactful for me these past 15 years amazing i love that it's it's you know it's so true that you know that um cyclical nature of you know and unpredictability you are sort of designing you're building this into your business that you will be resilient no matter what happens so that's fantastic. Talk to me about the difference between being a top biller and actually building a business. Was there anything that surprised you when you started your own business that you know you maybe weren't expecting, uh, or like what what was that like? So many things have surprised me um, starting my own <laughs> business, but <laughs> I, you know, the biggest is that. I think it's overwhelming what a blank canvas you have. Um, every day that overwhelms me in terms of your marketing, your branding, how you hire, what's your comp plan, how is it structured? Do you have temp producers? Do you have perm producers? Is everybody doing both? And um, if you're like me and you're a perfectionist and really type A, you kind of want it all done right now. And that can drive you crazy to be on that progressive, slow, um, figure it out as you go plan, which I think a lot of small businesses probably are. So for me, you know, the number one thing that has been most surprising and most difficult is the sheer amount of decisions that I need to make and things that I need to think about. Absolutely. Can you think of an example? Um, 
you mentioned to me um, on a previous occasion, like you feel like you're wearing 42 different hats. Um, and when you work for a company, most of the, you've maybe, you st still might have two or three hats, but a lot of those are done by other people, right? And now you do everything in your business. Right. So, so yeah. I, I'm thinking about my, you know, my week right now. Um, it's hiring. Well, what does that look like? How are we structuring that? Are we hiring experienced recruiters? Are we hiring junior recruiters? Well, do we have a training program for them? What's their career progression going to be? What's their comp plan going to look like? Are, and now, are they working in the office? Are they working at home? What does that mean? Um, how are we going to be intentional about a remote culture if they're not here? That's enough for anyone to think about for two years straight, I think. Right. Um, uh, you know, okay, marketing, what does that look like? What's your tone of voice? What's your brand? How are you showing up in the marketplace? These are, you know, all these um, bigger ideas that I think we're, we're all faced with as business owners down to, hi, maybe we should get a coffee service here um, in the office and little things like that. But at the same time, um, if you're also the top biller in your firm, you've got to do the work. And that's a lot to manage is simultaneously mm -hmm. thinking about how you're showing up for your employees, how you're managing, how you're developing them and supporting them as best you can. And, you know, all these other things that are keeping the business on track for growth so that you are achieving your your goals every year and you are working towards your end goal, whatever that may be, but also these clients and candidates have needs every day and um, it's hard to, to do all of that when you're just starting out and you're a small firm and you might not yet be at the place that you would love to be at <laughs> right away. Absolutely. Well, you've just highlighted exactly why a lot of solo operators do not scale because it's there's so many moving parts and it is it's hugely challenging and i'm excited that you're up for that challenge and you're tackling it head on um what have you learned then in the three years so you've gotten to two million which is a phenomenal milestone and you've built you know the beginnings of a team what have you learned looking back would have been the biggest um learnings from that well, I think I, when I started, I really had one goal, which was not to go into foreclosure on my house and not to bankrupt my family. <laughs> um, I really, you know, I had an idea about how my firm would be different. And I think the approach that I would bring as an individual, and then it was jump, um, you know, is there revenue? Are we profitable? And I think I, for the first couple of years, I was a practitioner um, who was really just sort of continuing her career on her own with, you know, some help from some other folks at that time. But I really had not sat down and thought about, you know, a lot of things that I think are now essential to our organization, especially to grow. So, and unfortunately the timing of COVID had a lot to do with that too. Yeah. Um, since that was sort of right after, you know, really after we were 
celebrating our one year anniversary, COVID hit. So I think that was a year that we kind of missed out on in terms of traditional growth because we were really just trying to stay afloat during that time. So I'm kind of working backwards and forwards at the same time right now. Absolutely. Amazing. And so like thinking about because you are still a producer and you, you know, are delivering to clients, what, how do you allocate your time? Like if you think of the percentages, like how much goes to doing the fee earning, how much goes to like, um, you know, managing the team and working with them, how much goes to the marketing and operations stuff? Like if you were to break it down. I think right now, um, a lot of my time is going to the business in terms of management and making those strategic decisions. I mean, probably as much as 60% of it. So I absolutely am looking to grow our team in the way of recruiters because um, the business is dictating that I show up for the business to continue on this path that we're on right now. And we need to continue our revenue growth. So that's um, a huge pull. And I would say right now it's, you know, maybe 60% on the business, 40% recruiting. It probably needs to even out a bit. So it's 50-50. I recently hired a chief operating officer um, and it was someone I know and trust from other areas of my life who, as a business owner herself in her own right, who has some, some extra time and bandwidth right now. And at first I was a little worried that Oh, maybe I'm not going to have enough work for her. <laughs> I've been laughing uh, no because <laughs> <laughs> I've given her a full-time job. Um, she is, you know, working around the clock, and it was actually just such um, validation for me because I had been, you know, really hard on myself that I was not achieving a lot of the things I wanted to achieve for the business or not able to make decisions as quickly or create a program for X, Y, or Z as quickly as I wanted to while I was also still being the primary fee earner. And then now that I have her and she's um, you know, working over 40 hours a week to execute a lot of these ideas, it's been very validating and also hugely impactful. So I'm really Amazing. glad yeah, That's for that. Congratulations. That's so cool. Thank and you. Uh, that's interesting because I've adopted the same strategy for growing my business, Amanda. So as you know, I've got Leanne, who's my right-hand person, and she's the COO. And, uh, you know, just what a smart move that was to bring her on board. So I'm glad you found someone like that who I think we also, you and I have quite a lot in common. You mentioned you're not the most organized and like you've got the big picture and the ownership of the clients and that sort of thing. But then some of the little details slip through the cracks. So um, totally can relate to that. You said something interesting, which is um, that you were feeling, you were hard on yourself and feeling that like you were not um, achieving everything you had wanted to. And I find this is a, actually a common thing with high achievers is because you mentioned ownership and responsibility and the fact that you take ownership and you feel responsible for making things happen. And that is a hugely positive quality. The downside of that, though, is 
I've noticed that that type of person also can be quite hard on themselves and, and beat themselves up if they don't manage to live up to their own expectations in that regard. Sure. Do you ever feel like that's a, that's a factor? Absolutely. Um, but I think, you know, with anything else, I mean, I made this decision to start this company and I knew that I did not want to be a solo practitioner and back to those ideas of integrity and transparency and personal ownership. If I am asking other recruiters, potential employees, clients, candidates to come along on this journey with me and be a part of my organization or partner with our organization, then I owe it to them to deliver a first-class experience for them and to have all of my ducks in a row and T's cross and I's dotted. So it <laughs> is, um, they probably give me, frankly, a lot more grace than I give myself. And it is important, I think, every day, every week to realize, to look back and see how far you've come um, from where you started, but also recognize that this is a process and you can't judge, you know, your the reality of your today with somebody else's today, which may be, you know, many years um, beyond yours, or maybe they had some investors when they started, or, you know, you just, you can't compare and you can't, you can't judge. I agree a hundred percent. And that is a really nice way to finish up this conversation is um, what, like five years from now, what will uh, Opus Lex um, look like? I imagine that Opus Lex will um, hopefully have recruiters in most major cities. We are not bound by geography now. We are very fluid in that way. But it, I know many recruiters are very excited to really be the authority in their own market. So I would love to have some folks from around the country to join us and um, expand the brand there while also continuing that um, very bespoke, personalized service that we really aim to deliver and choosing the clients we want to work with and the candidates that we want to represent. So we are well on our way to um, becoming a $10 million company. And I think we will absolutely be there by that point. We will always be woman owned. We will always be diversity focused. And, um, I'm really excited to see what the future has to, to hold for us. I love it. Thank you so much, Amanda. I really enjoyed this conversation and, uh, appreciate you for sharing your, your story and your wisdom. Thank you so much, Mark. It was nice chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.